Hello, everybody. This is Dr. Diana Wiley. I'm your host of Love, Lust, and Laughter. My guest, Dr. Carol Queen. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Dr. Queen. Queen is your perfect name because you are the queen of sex education. You are. Oh, just, my goodness. You're so nice. <laughs> oh, not nice. It's always saying the truth. And Carol Queen has been my friend for many years. And um, she is just, she's been the guest on my show several times, uh, most recently in November. So here we are again. We're going to talk about uh, her role, her history with Good Vibrations, her book, The Sex and Pleasure Book, The Vibrator Museum, uh, Masturbation. Masturbation. We need to talk about more about masturbation, even though it's kind of a touchy subject. <laughs> and um, if you're doing it right, <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> and and about and then we're looking forward to 2022. What are your intentions for good sex in the new year? And I also want to bring in a discussion not only of um, Carol's most recent book, the the Sex and Pleasure book, Good Vibrations, Guide to Great Sex for Everyone, but also your book from over 20 years ago, Exhibitionism for the Shy. I mean, there's so many really useful exercises in that. So let's get started. Carol Queen, Dr. Carol Queen, who is the staff psychologist, sexologist, I should say sexologist, since 1990. And Carol has used this platform to focus on sex education. Remember, she's the queen of sex education and women's <laughs> pleasure. And she informs in such an inspiring way so you have more sexual comfort with your sexual exploration. Welcome back to this program of Carol Queen. I'm so glad you're here. Oh, Diana, I am so happy to be here with you too, ringing out the old year. I'm sure there are going to be many yes. people listening who are like, yeah, ring that year out. <laughs> so let's do it. Exactly. And don't wait for the door to close behind it. <laughs> don't let it hit you in the butt. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. To say. <laughs> yes. Exactly. So, um, but I think even years ago, I think as long ago as 2017, we talked about your role, your um, the history of Good Vibrations beginning in 19, what was the year, 70? 77 was when Good 77, Vibrations 77, that's what I meant, founded. 77. Yeah. So give and us a little said, bit of I history. I showed up in 1990. Okay. Yes, that's right. The op- Joni Blank opened Good Vibrations in San Francisco in 1977, the exact year where it could be better received. But let's let's talk about a little bit about the history of Good Vibrations, and then when you came aboard and what your what your role is there. Sure. Well, I love the origin story of Good Vibrations because you're right, that was the perfect year, and San Francisco was the perfect place for a business like that. We were not the first women-owned sex toy company in the world. I think we were the third. There was one other in the United States, Eve's Garden. In New York City, right. inspired by Betty Dodson uh, and and run by Dell Williams, it was the very first one in the U.S. And there was a store in Germany, or actually a chain of stores in Germany, uh, that had opened in the 1960s by uh, a, an unsung in the U.S. A woman called Beata Uza, and her stores bore her name. But Joni. Uh, had been working at UCSF with the feminist therapist Lonnie Barbach, whose work I'm sure you know, Diana, and many of your many of your listeners likely do too. She's been around since the 70s. Has done some really and her book is book is a, just a classic. And, yes, uh, um, and she a sex. Uh, yeah, what's the? Gosh, I can't remember. Well, she's the name a sex her, therapist. Her she, yes, Lonnie Barbach, and she wrote and, a book um, about. And she wrote a book about about uh, masturbation, 
and uh, and orgasm, and particularly, or I mean, the focus was on orgasm, but uh, but masturbation was in in this book and in her her classes that she uh, arranged at, at UCSF at the medical school. Uh, one of the keys to orgasm, as we know, it, it is for many, and. Uh, Joni was helping her out with these classes. She was one of the people running the the pre-orgasmic women's groups. And over and over, when women were recommended to use a vibrator and see if that helped them orgasm, Joni observed these women saying, oh, I could never go into one of those places to buy a vibrator. And you know what she meant? She meant dirty bookstores, the old school dirty bookstores. Although many more things were sold there than books, I've got (laughs) <laughs> and, yes, yes. Uh, you know, that that was the first p- kind of place I walked into, Diana, and maybe you too, right? If you were if you were nervy in the 1970s, and I imagine you were, uh, to be interested in sexuality enough to make a, a, a living and a life of it, it wasn't quite as frightening a place as it was for some of the women who said, oh, they could never go in. Well, not only was the I familiar with good vibrations... And went there, but in, in um, well, the early 90s, so we're fast-forwarding a little bit, but I was leading a group of older women, mostly divorced women and widows, after doing these um, sexuality and relationship uh, workshops with Dr. Walter Bortz. And these women left, it was just before Christmas, and they left uh, the group, and they were all giggling and happy because they were going to make a field trip to Good Vibrations and do their Christmas shopping for themselves and for maybe a boyfriend or a lover or, you know. And so they were Fantastic. so happy. Yeah. So good, good memories about that. And I also go back a long time with Lonnie Barback, and she really did the seminal work with um, her pre-orgasmic uh, workshops and... Um, in 1991, she asked, she and her husband were going to be on Joan Rivers, uh, the show, and she asked if my then-husband and I would be on, too, and the subject was what it's like to be married to a sex therapist. So there were three oh, couples, fantastic. and and it, it was really a, a very enlightening show, and Lonnie is just, what a pioneer, what an inspiration. Lonnie Barbeck. And I, st- I yes. think her books are still relevant. Um, yes, Becoming they are. Orgasmic, and, I think, and, was her first book. Yeah, that's right. Well, and maybe just, not. Just yeah. Just recently, uh, within the last, say, three, four years, she mm-hmm. uh, launched an app. So she is keeping up with the times, i got to say. I can't figure I out I did not know that. Okay. One. Yes, and... I think your 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 listeners will will probably be interested to know that uh, I believe the focus of this app is um, helping people in in couples get to know each other even better, which is a great yes. you know sparking communication and insight about each other. Fantastic um, link to her years and years of sex therapy and couples therapy. So so so. Barbuck, in many ways, was was a sort of behind-the-scenes inspiration for Good Vibrations. Not directly, you know, not saying, Joni, mm-hmm. you must start a store. But but this space that she created for pre-orgasmic women, and uh, as you know, that language is very important. In the old days, women yes. who weren't orgasmic were called frigid. That is so pejorative, and it's, so you know, pejorative. it's not their fault. It's bad sex education and occasionally not very competent technique on the parts of the people who hope they'll orgasm, you know, and that's not their fault either because they got bad sex education. So, so, you know, uh, uh, Carol, yeah, Carol, I think your analogy is just brilliant. And you have said on this program before Most were not given a proper sex education in school. Can you imagine if driver's ed consisted of a teacher saying, here's the car, now don't drive it. (laughs) (laughs) And that's a lot of what sex education is about. Well, here's the information, but you must be celibate. (laughs) Yes, don't use it. Don't drive it. Don't practice it. 
even before somewhat decent information, or somewhat medically medically correct sex education still doesn't talk about pleasure, particularly certainly mm-hmm. not teenagers. Mm-hmm. You know, you've, you've got a if you're lucky, you can you could go to college in a place that has a a good enough class in sexuality that you can actually start to glean some tips and some insight that would be relevant to your own life. But but that's not what, of course, sex education is meant to be in this culture because we're still so nervous about it. It's really, it, that's so problematic. And, and you know, you're, you're so right, don't drive the car. And in the old days, it was even worse. It was, you know, uh, this is all, this is all, Dirty, nasty stuff. Now save it for the one you love. <laughs> yeah, exactly. exactly. And I bet you see clients all the time who are scarred by this. Oh, yes. The, the, you know, what? what is very prominent in so many people uh, that have, are experiencing sexual difficulties is shame. An yes. overabundance of shame. And sometimes that, well, that usually goes back to their childhood, parental things, and uh, religious overlays, uh, especially um, the Catholic Church with their dictums about don't touch down there, you'll go Mm -hmm. straight to hell. I remember when I was at UCLA's Female Sexual Medicine Center back in the early 2000s, um, I had one Catholic, still practicing Catholic woman in her 40s, and the only way she could reach orgasm was to lie on her stomach on a carpet and rock. But heck, it was, look, ma, no hands. I'm not touching myself down there. I'm rocking on my vulva and my clitoris, but it's not partner compatible. Let's face it, (laughs) it's not. (laughs) Not particularly. I mean, I can can think of some you know, some several step ways that, that that might move to a, to a, you know, with her on top, lying flat. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In a perfect world, sure, there, there would maybe be some steps, but the, but the shame that made her worry about whether she was touching herself in the first place would, mm-hmm. you know, likely make her feel ashamed on top, right? I mean, there's, there's sure. that, that profound degree of self-consciousness that sometimes... Sometimes women don't even think of as shame. And I say women. I mean, I think people of any gender identity can certainly can suffer from shame, can can have been shamed. You know, uh, high school bullying, if none of the other things that you mentioned, can can cause an uptick of shame in a person. But but I think women have it so rough because it's been part of the female role not to be able to really embrace their sexuality. It's always supposed to be responsive, not active. It's always yeah. supposed to be, someday my prince will come and so will I, my favorite sexology. Exactly. All exactly. Gone. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and that's the, you know, that's the sort of thing, that's the sort of thing that Joni saw in these, in these groups with Lonnie Barbach it's the sort of thing that that made the women so afraid to go into a sex store and it's what Joni knew she had to try to overcome if she was going to start her own sex shop that was going to be different and feel different to those women so it's it makes me so happy to hear that your group of women were you know excitedly laughing and and planning an adventure to go to good vibrations you know back 30 years ago because if somebody can laugh and get excited and go into a sex store, uh, it almost doesn't matter what they buy in there. They, they don't have to buy anything. <laughs> They're already on the right track. They are not. They're already on the right track. Enjoy and, uh, sexuality. Yeah. That's what I think. And, and you know, the Joni, Joni uh, put, put film up on the windows at Good Vibrations early on and, and we, uh, you know, all the young, the young women that she hired to work there, we always said, why are the windows covered up? That's terrible. Open the windows up. Joni said, you have no idea some, how terrified some of our customers are. They, they wouldn't come in here if they thought someone could look in the window and see them. We have to make a space that feels safe for them. Maybe someday this won't be necessary anymore. And I really always was so, so struck by the, 
you know, Joni wasn't a shy person, but, but I was struck by the degree of compassion that she understood what she was dealing with when she, when she thought about making a space that felt safe for the women who needed good vibrations the most. Because there exactly. were people who came and were happy to be there, and they were laughing, and they were, you know, waving vibrators in the air and yelling to their partner across the store, hey, look at this, you want to get this? Those aren't the people Joni was thinking about, although she was so glad to open the doors to them. She was thinking about the women who couldn't believe it would ever feel okay to go into a place where they could buy a vibrator. That's and also that's lots of women struggling uh, with orgasm. And, um, of course, Emily Morse has the uh, widely listened to podcast, and she recounts how she was 20 years old and she went into uh, Good Vibrations and in San Francisco where she was living. And one of the uh, lovely young women salespersons said to her, so tell me about your orgasm. And she said, well, of course, I've never had one. So she wanted to learn more. And I remember my first trip was solo to Good Vibrations, and it was sometime in the early 80s, I believe. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I, was, I was struck with how, how, yes, it was a safe place, but that women could even try out in those days, try out the vibrators wearing their underpants in a private mm-hmm. dressing room. Did, did that last, having the trying out of the vibrator? It lasted I mean, I was impressed. The but, the, 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 eventually, that, had, that, that, that innovation had to go away. That was, that was yeah. a pretty radical thing that Joni... But Joni really understood uh, something significant, which is that, uh, you know, the vibrators that we really, really wanted people to know about were the ones that plugged in the wall. They were strong. They lasted for a long, long time. Uh, they were were not sex toy looking. So even though they mm-hmm. were, you know, electrical machines, for some people, they felt safer to buy and use than something that looked uh, more phallic-shaped. And, of course, as Joni would be the first one to point out, not everyone wants to explore with an insertable vibrator. People so assume that insertion is required for orgasm. And, of course, that's quite far from the truth. Three-quarters of women rarely or never have orgasms when uh, just during intercourse or insertion. So, so mm-hmm. if clitoral stimulation isn't a focus for many, many women, not all, but many, uh, there won't be enough or, or at least reliable orgasms or any at all. So Joni wanted to make sure that people knew that these two basic kinds of vibrators that, that we sold, the wand and the, and the coil styles, Yes. Um, apart from all the battery-operated things that were over on the wall, all the smoothies, all the all that other stuff, those two kinds of vibrators are terrific, and they feel quite different from each other. So, yeah. if somebody's never used a vibrator before or had an orgasm before, how do they know which one they want? Joni said, mm-hmm. "Go in there." Don't put it against your bare skin. Put it against your clothing. See how it feels. Which one do you like the best? Mm-hmm. And yeah. if both of them seem too strong, then we would go look at the battery-operated vibrators and say, well, this one might be a little more to your liking than that one. And, you know, that's that's how we sort of worked out the um, the, the path to what somebody might like the most back in those days. And, you know, when I stepped into Good Vibrations, you mentioned, you mentioned that I've been there since 1990. So, yes. so over 30 years, I was already um, working on my doctorate. Hadn't gotten mm-hmm. yet, but working on my doctorate at the, at the Institute for Advanced Study of Human Sexuality. Rest yep. in peace. Uh, it was such a, such a rare and quirky and fabulous place to get an education. And, yes. um, I was always, I was always interested in talking to the customers who needed sex education, but that too was baked into Joni's plan. It wasn't just me as a sexologist in training. It was 
we want to get the, the best quality stuff in there and we want to get the best degree, the most comfortable degree of communication and information to impart to people so that they can use their toys optimally and have the best time. Because if someone gets a toy, you know, through mail order somewhere, I mean, you know, they, they can get they can get one from us through mail order and, you know, ask us questions as they go if they want to. But uh, if somebody gets a toy that nobody talks to them about, if they don't have very much experience with toys or with orgasm, uh, they may they may start it out and and think I don't like that. That didn't feel right. I didn't I didn't come. And uh, learning a little bit about arousal would have made a difference to that person well, and yes, what they and that's with the toy. That's what we need to talk. To we need to talk about arousal because I've had clients, female clients over the years, new ones who said, well, I tried this vibrator and nothing happened. I, yeah. I would ask, well, were you aroused? Well, no. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. Let's talk about arousal because, oh, it's just essential. And then, and then I want to talk about the vibrator museum that you oversee because the history of, of um Oh, hysteria and genital massage is fascinating, but it's, um, uh, it's an amazing. It's it's stranger than fiction. Yes. Well, yes. You know the arousal. I you're you're so right. I mean, I, this is the this is one of the things I've come to believe is is largely missing from sort of pop sex education, with all of the different ways that people can can learn how to. You know, stimulate their G spot and have multiple orgasms and this and that. And it's great that there is that there are so many people who want to do this education and information, uh, pleasure activism. All of this is great, but if you don't walk people through a kind of sex education that they certainly didn't get in high school, maybe not even in college, of the the role of arousal. Some people will call it turn on. It, great, it's, that's basically a synonym, but the, the, as you know, the body gets ready for the kind of, of sensation that you will experience with direct genital touch or with intercourse or what have you by blood flow, by waking up nerves, changes happen in your bodily chemistry and the, you know, the hormones circulating, all of that. A, a variety of steps happen to to basically make your body and probably your mind too, I guess, welcome yes. the sensation that you're going to have. And it's perfectly possible, you know, that that you mentally would never welcome a certain kind of sensation. I'm not saying that that going through these physical steps guarantees that someone will want to have a particular kind of sex. Those two things are not the same. But if someone skips the turn-on phase and assumes that because they love their partner, because their partner wants to have sex, because they just got a sex toy and it's guaranteed to give them an orgasm or whatever it is that they think, that they are going to have an optimal experience, they're probably not going to because they skipped that part that is, it's it's like the, 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 the stepping stones that lead to the ability to orgasm and really being into your partner actually is, is a little bit of an end run because that can be arousing to begin with for some people at certain stages in their relationship. But people who have never been fully aroused sometimes have the hardest time because they don't actually know what they're looking for. And those are the ones that I think really, really uh, could benefit from a sex therapist like you to really, you know, sort of go through everything with them. Uh, good, good books about um, arousal and orgasm and sexual functioning. I mean, there's still plenty of people who don't know about the function of the clitoris, right? It's, it's the 21st century and we haven't even gotten that completely sorted out. So there will be, I hope and pray uh, a period of time for all of us when we can have access to that knowledge. And I think it would be a better world if we let young people know during sex ed that, you know, even if it's not time for them to seek partner sex yet, 
that pleasure is their birthright and the time will arrive that, that it will be the time for them to explore that because leaving that out impairs people, I believe. Absolutely. And, and there's a, um, there are some physio, well, you talked about the clitoris and so, so many people still don't know how the function of it, that it has six to 8,000 nerve fibers, it's got the legs, it's got the uh, vestibular bulbs. There, and, and so you, in your book, um, your book with Shar Rednor, uh, the Sex and Pleasure Book, Good Vibrations Guide to Great Sex for Everyone, it's very thorough <laughs> in describing what when you might need to, um, to, to be aroused when a woman is um, sufficiently aroused, and that can take 15 to 20 minutes of, of so-called foreplay, but touching and all kinds of, of uh, non, non-genital play, too, um, if a woman has a uterus, which is above her cervix, that lifts up and away when she's aroused, when she's excited. Mm-hmm. And if that hasn't happened during intercourse, the penis hits the cervix and then the uterus. And that causes, for many women, discomfort, if not outright pain. So we yeah. really need to um, be physiologically ready, too, as well as the psychological thing, which is often, just like Joni Blank wanted, safety for her store. Women need to feel safe in a relationship and cherished. And, and uh, um, yeah, if a woman had sexual trauma in her history, uh, she's uh, her amygdala, the fear center of her brain, gets overwired. So she, it's really hard for her to let go and have a great yeah. orgasm because she's all, she's all tense and she can't let go and she's worried about so many things with the kind of history she has. So many, many um, points of um, discussion here and points of pleasure and so on. So yeah, and and you know this 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 lack of information. I mean, this, mm-hmm. this is our link to talking about the history of vibrators, isn't it? Because the, because yes. the backstory of vibrators um, d- does not have them be invented and sold and, and acknowledged as sexual helpers or toys. The, the, the history of vibrators has them developed and then used as medical devices. Some people would now say quack medical devices, but I, I, I don't know if that's, a, that's, that's not true in all particulars. I mean, I, the vibrators are a medical device. They do relax muscles. They bring on, they bring on relaxation and can, can you know, help with bodily soreness of various kinds, and they can uh, draw, draw blood to it, the surface, so they're good circulatory uh, items, and that's where they link up with sexual pleasure. Because as we were talking about arousal, I also want to spell. I mentioned blood flow, but the the touches of uh, of foreplay or whatever you want to call it. You know, some people don't like the term foreplay, but arousal activities of whatever kind, from kissing yes. to stroking to touching to squeezing to you know, hugging so so tight that you can grab somebody's butt cheeks on the other side. I mean, there are all kinds of all kinds of bodily touches before you even get to genital touches are bringing blood to the surface, are making the blood flow more strongly, and are leading us to um, a place where sexual touch feels good, better, amazing, um, and that's what a vibrator can do very efficiently. It can bring blood uh, to the area, and that's one of the reasons that it's a superior sex toy. So a hundred and some years ago, so close to 150 years ago now, not quite, but pretty close to that, um, as electricity was being developed, we get all the kinds of things that had been household objects or, or you know, objects of industry being electrified. We, we move from, you know, steam power to electric power and so forth. And so we get 
the first vibrators that are electric and that are, you can plug them into the wall. And first, they are being used by doctors. And what, what are doctors doing? They're treating all kinds of things. But they one of the things they're treating is a disease called hysteria, which hysteria. almost happens in women. And... Um, and we don't even really think it's a disease anymore. Whatever whatever they called hysteria then uh, still exists in women with PTSD, women with uh, with with certain kinds of neurological issues. There's there's a lot of there's a lot of things that that the things that they perceived as hysteria um, still might manifest. But they thought hysteria was originally they thought hysteria was caused by the womb moving around the body coming um, as my famous favorite science writer Mary Roach put it oh yeah coming unmoored like a badger roaming around in its den my favorite quote (laughs) (laughs) a badger I I, 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 in fact I'm holding her book (laughs) bonk a curious coupling of science and sex so good it's so, so good, good because she. So I just wanted to um, read this part. Masturbation therapy for women is not altogether new. In fact, altogether old. Genital massage was a common medical treatment for sexually frustrated women as far back as Hippocrates' day. The Hippocratic physician, of course, lacking batteries, <laughs> had to make do with his fingers, or often those of a midwife. So, yes, they yes. Had to make and do. of course the midwife, because the physician's hands got sore, and we wouldn't want those guys to get carpal tunnel syndrome from no, doing this course. massage all day long. So, yeah, and 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 this is, I mean, this this history is nuts, and uh, and many people are, are like, this can't be right. But yeah. uh, the wonderful historian Rachel Means. And her book, The Technology of Orgasm, which our, yes. our antique vibrator museum is sort of dedicated to. I was just on a, a panel with her a few weeks ago, and she's so great. And she went back in time. She read books in Latin. She, she did all kinds of research uh, to, 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 try to try to show the, you know, sort of the, the, the day, the, the, the Hippocratic days when this idea was just first uh, coming to mind and, and, and being taught to other doctors all the way through the, the Enlightenment, all the way to the advent of electricity, and doctors finally having a handy helper that wasn't a midwife, but was a vibrator. And so you don't see individual in people and families be able to buy a vibrator to take home and treat their problems until almost the turn of the 20th century. Before that, they were medical devices, for sure. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. you start to see um, them show up in catalogs. You start to see you, you start to see a consumer level vibrator. And uh, by 1917, fun historical fact: there were more electric vibrators in American households and electric toasters. <laughs> this from Rachel Maine's fantastic research. And wow, the, the and and during that same time period there was a book that was published called health and how to get it and this book was published by the hamilton beach company now i know we use huh? that company's wares to make our margaritas in the 21st century but in those days yes. they also made vibrators they were yeah. you know, they were a, a company that took small motors and they built things around them. And that was one of the things that they sold. They were a, a major source of vibrators in the 19, from until, until the mid twenties, at least. And mm-hmm. their, their vibrators looked steampunk and terrifying, but there they were. You could get them through the monkey boards catalog, or if you went to the big department store in the city or whatever, and by traveling salesmen. So they published this book health and how to get it. And it has a whole chapter on hysteria. And it also has mm-hmm. a chapter on how to use a vibrator to treat your tuberculosis. And I just oh. want to just, everyone out there listening, if you think you have a touch of tuberculosis, A, today it's probably COVID, but B, don't just put a vibrator on it. <laughs> it won't cure it. 
So that was quackery. It might make your chest feel better if you're congested, but that's about it. It's a bacterium. You have to go to the doctor and get it cured. But but this is the, the, the way that people were encouraged to think about taking charge of their own health during this period of time. And it's just wild to think that, that someone who maybe a doctor diagnosed as having um having hysteria would see that they could actually do those treatments at home and feel better until the advent of porn. And this is what let the cat out of the bag. This is actually something that, that, that leads to the present day and us being able to talk about vibrators openly as sex toys. They start using vibrators in porn and it's very evident what they're using them to do to arouse and to have orgasms. It's obvious. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the the doctor, you know, the doctor in the white coat is gone. The 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 diagnosis is gone. You're just seeing people having sex on film. And within about a decade, the doctors had stopped saying that they treated hysteria. Within thirty years, the AMA had voted to take hysteria out of the medical diagnostic books because mm. they couldn't continue to do this treatment yeah. and everybody says well didn't the doctors know this was an orgasm and and i i very sorry to tell them that it, the doctor's wives might have not had as good a time as we would fantasize them having because it appears that many of these doctors had no idea that this it, it was a hysterical paroxysm of relief it wasn't an orgasm and every once in a while, a doc would pop up in the in the history and say, my colleagues, are you sure this is not an orgasm? And basically, the colleagues would just shout him down and go, no, you don't be ridiculous. And, of course, we're thinking back, you know, a couple, couple, 300 years when it wasn't totally clear to everyone that women even had orgasms. So, just as Oh, we've come a long a way, baby. <laughs> we have, except in certain corners of the world, and I, I imagine you've seen some of these folks come through your practice. In certain places, it really is not considered ladylike <laughs> to think about all of this sexual pleasure business. It's really not not supported in the ways that we all are being raised and and informed. And you know, and that gets us back to to what we were talking about before uh, here's driver ed this is a car don't drive it and mm-hmm. and 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 you can see why this would be something that we still have to struggle with when you think you know 100 uh, 120 years ago seems like a long time ago it's not that long in the scheme of things there there were reasons for them not to be curious and positive about women's sexuality back then and plenty of people have not dropped that tendency today. So, you know, that's that's why I stuck with Good Vibrations. It seems like the best platform I could reliably ally myself with unless I was going to do what you do and see, see clients, which, of course, is hugely important work. But to talk to lots of people at the same time, that I feel like, Everybody needs this info. Then they can do with it what they wish. But everybody needs it. Yeah, it's 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 interesting just to go back to um, the hysteria sufferers, and so we now know why they weren't just told to go home and masturbate twice a week. These early women, because um, masturbation has a long history as a shameful, dangerous, and much, much discouraged act. And uh, fortunately, we all know better now. <laughs> um, and because gynecologists are recommending it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, 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 and know, Diana, an orgasm is a ticket. An orgasm is a ticket to sexual health. Yeah. And um, Yes. And you're mentioning, and we know that testosterone levels are significantly higher when women are having sex as compared yes. to when their partners aren't there. I mean, masturbation helps, uh, but uh, partner sex is more likely to um, give you the full benefits. And oh. and another another statistic I love came from a, a research study from 
University of Washington, up near where you are, uh, years yes. ago, that suggested that women who were in uh, sexually healthy relationships, um, especially early in their relationship, if I remember correctly, masturbate more, not less. And, and, and yes. everyone was so surprised by that. That's, that didn't make any sense because this idea that masturbation is for... Um, people who don't have a partner, you know, it's the, it's the, it's the next best thing. Uh, it's, it's when you don't have what you want, right? This, this idea of masturbation is being a substitute for the quote unquote real thing. And what this showed was no, when, when women are feeling charged up, it's more likely that, that 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 feeling will accompany them into self-pleasuring as well as into bed with their partners and and it's the the people who don't have any um sexual pleasure in their life who may not be stirred to masturbate exactly uh, you know i mean going and seeing you and being encouraged to masturbate can turn that around of course but but it's it's very interesting. It's it's a little counterintuitive to so many people who think, you know, there's one real kind of sex, and then all the other kinds of sex are sort of fake or adjacent. And but of course, people are more people are more diverse than that in in how they experience things. And what you said about the about the shame with masturbation, yeah. You know, I, I don't always think to bring up when I'm talking about the Antique Vibrator Museum, but I really should because it's extremely important to understand this. That at the same time as the doctors were um, turning their their new newly purchased wonderful vibrator machines on their women patients with hysteria, this is also the same time frame uh, and the same you know the same medical community that demonized masturbation, considered it um, a mental illness or a precursor to a mental illness that that really helped solidify the, the idea in the public's mind that masturbation was a problem in kids, in adults, in women, certainly, and everybody. And the same profession, maybe not the same exact doctors, but the same folks were turning around and causing orgasmic responses that were helpful for the people that they were treating. It's just mind-blowing, but it helps us understand what a confusing history we all have culturally about these issues. It's, it helps explain why, you know, why you and I still have work to do, because people don't always get the, the info they need, and sometimes they get plenty of info they really don't need. So true. And um, Betty Dotson, in her book, Sex for One, she said, the most consistent sex will be the love affair you have with yourself. Masturbation will get you through childhood, puberty, romance, marriage, and divorce, and it will see you through old age, end quote. That's right. That's right. And, uh, you know, we miss her. She died a year ago, Halloween, and you and I in a past show have talked about all of the contributions she has made to the field, uh, lasting ones. Um, let's, uh, let's shift a little bit to, um, we talked, you talked about blood flow, and um, in the early 2000s, there was a $400 device that had to be prescribed by doctors. And it was the the Eros therapy, which is basically a, 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 a and I bought one because I I was newly widowed and I wanted to experiment and see what if it would be a good thing to recommend to my clients. And um, sure. So it was like one of the first sex sex toys that we now have that uh, the clit the clitoris the clit suckers um but <laughs> it definitely got and you could get a toy for much less than $400 uh to bring blood to the area blood flow and um and we we talked a little bit about these clit, clit suckers my my favorite is Lilo's cruiser which i call the Hoover but it 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 creates an amazing 
suction like it's it's the technology and all the different speeds that can go and if you can if a woman can use this uh, this clit sucker or some toy like it on her own clitoris and get comfortable with it it is too much stimulation for some and you have to kind of get get into it but then you can really have amazing orgasms and then teach your partner how to use it in partner sex and all of this is doable and can make can turn up the volume of of a hot sex life even even if you're an older person in a long-term relationship there's there's many many benefits <laughs> so um, That's so when you right. talked and, a little and, bit about the womanizer was maybe one of the first. Yes, yes, I looked I looked it up today, and they launched the womanizer in 2014, so seven years ago mm-hmm. or a little a little longer. And, yes. and you know the when the womanizer came along, and lots of people don't like the name of the womanizer. By the way, they're like, oh, I choose that name. They chose it because they're Germans and they thought they had come up with the best pun in English. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and they didn't, I guess, know the you know the, the the term being associated to a creepy guy at the bar or whatever. <laughs> so sorry, but uh, you know, give it a nickname if you don't like the name, or choose a different brand. Uh, but the but the womanizer launched this um, this fantastic. Um, change in the kinds of toys that were available because vibrators had so ruled the day. And, you know, you're right. The Eros was a medical device. You're calling it a yes. sex toy. wasn't wrong either because, of course, of course, it could be used that way. But they, you know, the people who were prescribing it wouldn't probably have used that kind of language for the most part. And No. And you, and you had, so you had to go to the doctor. You had to be able to afford to go to the doctor, go to the doctor, have the nerve to say, I would like, I'm having sexual issues, I would like to try one of these things, or tell them about your sexual issues, and the doctor would have to be informed about yes. the arrows. And, of course, many doctors aren't informed much about sexual pleasure much functioning about. to begin with. We all yeah, think, exactly. oh, they must learn that in medical school. No, they don't. We learn that in school. They don't learn most of that stuff in, in school, the the the, the illness is sure, you know, fixing what's broken, but not the pleasure component. So, so true. This is one of the things that I think is really, I mean, it's, it's really worth pointing out to people that, that it isn't always, I mean, it goes back to Joni saying, no, I have to have film over the windows because these women won't come in the door if I don't. They're too frightened. And plenty of people have, you know, reached out to me and told me things, and I have said, have you mentioned this to your doctor? And they would be like, oh, no, I could never say that to my doctor. <laughs> oh, mm-hmm. for heaven's sake. And, and I encourage everyone to talk to their doctor about the things they need to. And if their doctor isn't responsive and doesn't seem to know anything, encourage them to get some info. Because this is human or, functioning or change, related to all, change doctors. all of your concerns, or change doctors, or both. <laughs> you know, your partner. I mean, I've heard. I encourage you to get some sexuality-related information. I'm leaving by. <laughs> I've heard some horror stories from my point of view about a new client comes to me and says, "Well, I went to my doctor." And yes, I'm perimenopausal. And he said, well, it is your age. Just have a glass of wine and relax. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my. And then another doctor said, <laughs> I don't. Another doctor said, um, he reported this in a conference I went to at the, uh, in the early 2000s, that an, uh, one of his colleagues said, I don't dare bring up low sexual desire with my perimenopausal or postmenopausal women because they're likely to start to cry and I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say. I don't know. I, I just, these doctors are very, uh, many are very uncomfortable with the whole notion of female sexuality or sexuality in general, but women wanting pleasure and wanting to want. Yeah. There are so many yeah. women once they've, perimenopausal and they, their hormones are not balanced and they need to get their balance and their hormones balanced and they need to 
have access to good information, including vibrators, sex toys that can get the blood flow going. Uh, yes. There, there's. We do have a lot of work to do. No question about it, Carol. No question. And I, I don't remember if the last time we were chatting about this that uh, that I brought up my friend Heather Corinna, who has uh, just published a book about perimenopause uh, called "What Fresh Hell Is This?" Perimenopause. No, we didn't. I don't. I'm other indignity than you. Yeah. <laughs> what fresh hell is this? It's such a refreshingly attitudinal book, which plenty of menopausal women will really uh, resonate with, I believe. <laughs> and and Heather goes into this. Uh, Heather, who who founded Scarletine, the wonderful uh, oh, yeah. website for teens and young adults to help give them a fuller and, and more diverse sexuality-related education, uh, Heather. Heather includes a chapter called The Basics that talks about sleep and and hydration and what you're eating and what, just all the all the health related things that that are so basic but that we can get out of whack on easily and how so much easily. more problematic perimenopause and menopause can be if you're not holding down the fort around those kinds of things. And I just I just think everyone who is having any kind of a rough time or who is, you know, mother or grandmother had a rough time around this should 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 start looking into this even before they hit perimenopause so that they have Absolutely. a little bit more of a perspective. And Heather told me the damnedest thing said what about doctors when you talk to them about, about this stuff? Heather said, if, if a doctor knows all about perimenopause and menopause, it's because they've gone and taken extra classes. They have specialized in it. It's uh, not something that they get as a regular. You know, I've been talking about this and, and sex with doctors for such a long time. You know, they get maybe five hours in medical school about sexual functioning. Well, apparently, perimenopause, menopause, too, even though those things are so very implicated in health-related issues and outcomes, Apparently, those are special, and you have to go and learn some special extra stuff in order to really well serve your menopausal patients. So I just want to suggest to your listeners who are dealing with this kind of thing, check with your doc and see if they've got the information and, and see if there's a specialist in your network, because I think that probably would really matter to many. I'm sure that, the, you know, there are people who go through menopause just fine. They, they don't, you know, they don't have any effects that they would consider negative or problematic and good for them <laughs> and then there are the people for whom what fresh hell is this is exactly the right title for a book <laughs> carol would you repeat heather's last name corinna c-o-r-i-n-n-a and listeners can okay. can look up uh what fresh hell is this <laughs> on the good vibes website we carry that book it's so terrific, and uh, you yeah. can find it, I'm sure, in other places where terrific books are sold, too. Yes. Another book that I have liked for years is uh, Gail Sheehy's book, Sex and the Seasoned Woman, uh, published yeah. in 2006, and uh, she has, and uh, she got Helen Fisher's uh, permission to share, uh, Helen, and we know who Helen Fisher is, and some of our listeners oh, do. but so great. She's great, and she's um, done some really important re research. Anyway, she knows a lot, and she uh, so she reported that um, she was newly menopausal. She had a great boyfriend. They were having really hot sex. She was having regular orgasms and uh, great orgasms, and then she wanted to experiment with herself. She had an estrogen patch. She cut the estrogen patch in half. Her orgasms went down to half. She took the, or mm -hmm. the estrogen patch off completely, and she didn't have any more orgasms. She, and so that was pretty good evidence uh, for her and for the rest of uh, the, you know, the scientific community to know that estrogen is really important for orgasms, for female orgasms. Yes. 
And having your yes. your and if a woman doesn't want to go on bioidentical hormone replacement therapy, which I've been on for many years, but some women can't go on it, HRT, then the estrogen patches the 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 the, uh, the local kinds of things can be helpful for women. But I suggest to women that if they're in perimenopause, that um, they get uh, certainly a baseline, uh, a sex, they need to have their sex hormones tested with a blood test, and they have to ask for it, otherwise they won't do it. So estrogen, progesterone, testosterone, get those hormones tested and see what your levels are. And a, a low level of estrogen, pretty much that plus not having a period for a year, indicates that you're in menopause. And you might need to get your hormones balanced in one way or another. But working with a knowledgeable uh, uh, provider, whether it's a... Right. I mean, I work with a, nat- a naturopath who's a, who specializes in sexual medicine. So she has the best of Eastern and Western medicine. And we, we need solutions that, that will help, <laughs> will really help. Yes, and... And so far, I'm going bareback on the on the, the menopause experience, partly because I'm curious to to see what others experience. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not it's not that I will will never go on hormones. I'm, I might very well, but I'm I'm interested in this, just sort of seeing how it how it goes. Yeah. And I've got to say, it, it certainly is an option, but the the effects will probably be more pronounced uh, in all kinds of ways, you know, the blood, uh, the bone thinning, all kinds of things that your estrogen affects lots and lots of bodily systems. And if you're going to not add uh, any kind of hormone replacement therapy to your experience, it's a really good idea to read up on, uh, what to expect, what to what to watch out for, you know, regular exercise is going to be extra important. It's always important, but it'll be always important. important. So, so that kind of, you know, stay hydrated, don't, you know, make sure that you know how other medications that you are taking might interact with all of these other things as well. There's, you know, there's a lot. I, I, I wish... I wish that Heather hadn't given me this news about doctors because if anybody is working with anybody who's perimenopausal age and up, things about the the so-called change of life, you know, there are many changes, but 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 those things will interact with other elements of your health. So I just encourage all of you and any of you who are listening who, who are... Uh, of the the non clitoris vulva uterus persuasion, but who have uh, dear friends or partners who do have those those bits or have had those bits, I would say encourage them or or, or just yourself get informed. There's no there's no excuse not to know more about our bodies, and the same is true around sexual functioning. You know, this is this is another. This is another thing related to, oh, well, we can't really talk about that. Well, yes, we can. And yes, we've, we've been doing work as sexologists, as sex therapists and educators, you know, for 50 or 60 years to try to move the needle on, or longer, depending on how far back you, you want to look at your sexologists, to try to move the needle on this silence and this shame. I mean, this, this set of issues that we're talking about, it doesn't seem like it's related to shame of masturbation, but it is. It is Absolutely. Related, because it's shame about our sexual bodies. I... Um Let's end the show because we're close to the ending. First, I want to give a quote from your book. It's the final quote from your book, uh, the Sex and Pleasure book. And you write, nearly 40 years ago, and now it's 40 years ago, I think, Good Vibrations dreamed of a radical life where pleasure was your birthright Maybe this is still a dream, is it? My dream, Carol's dream, this is written by your co-author. Everyone, a good vibrations dream for you, for your present and your future, and for all who desperately want to experience their authentic sexual selves or who aren't brave enough to do it 
now, but will be soon or will one day. And then the final question I want to put out there for our listeners, too. What do you think the future of sex will be? How do you see your own sexual future? Oh, and there's our music. Well, we'll just have to have you back, Carol. I would love to. I would love to, Diana. And that's a good happy 2022, isn't it? It is. And thinking about our sexual future and our intentions for being more sexually uninhibited, more communicative, those sorts of things. More informed. Informed. Everyone. And to you, Carol, I, you're always such a delight and so well-informed. I really appreciate you, Carol. And uh, Diana, thank you. Right back to you. Thank you. And um, Happy New Year to everybody. And I'll, I'll see you next, next year. All right. <laughs> happy New Year. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.